Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero Podcast, another bounty episode that is. I'm Spectre, with me is Z. Um, today we have two AWS-focused topics on their uh, relational database service and VPN client, uh, as well as a mix of a few other topics that uh, we found a bit interesting. As always, the Spot the Vuln solution will be covered on our binary episode tomorrow. And before we get started, uh, also thank you, Leonie Fortnite, for uh, for the bit donation. All right, so we'll lead off with um, some Git bugs that were detailed on the GitHub blog here. Um, it's worth noting these issues don't affect GitHub specifically, but affect the Git local client. Um, so they rec they recommend people update their local client. Um, vulnerabilities aren't super complex here. There's two of them. Uh, first of all, is the fact that when you use Git outside of a repository, uh, Git will traverse up the current directory to look for like Git configuration information, um, and it will traverse past ownership boundaries. So on a shared system, it's possible for a malicious user to write a, a bad config or a malicious config at some higher level directory, um, like directly in the root of the C drive or something. And because there's some config variables like core.fsmonitor um, that can do dangerous actions like invoke executables, they can be used to gain code execution in the context of the user who would have run the git command outside of a repo. Obviously, pretty unlikely attack scenario, um, but you know it's still a valid issue, um, and that was fixed by just making it so that Git will respect the directory ownership now. So whenever it reaches a directory that isn't owned by the user, uh, it'll just it it won't traverse any farther than that. Um, yeah, I I agree with you that it is one of those things where the likelihood of having this tact is pretty low because you are requiring one, just a user interaction or something like that, where somebody's trying to execute Git inside of a repository or inside of a non-repository directory. It happens from time to time. So like it can happen. Um, and then you also need some that's able to plant this .get folder somewhere higher in the chain. So like your C drive. I mean, they use the example here of writing right to the C root um, and then .get. Which, I mean, sure, that would catch everything, but who's able to write there? Um, I, I, I recall on Windows, you've got to be admin to write directly to the C root now also. Um, so you can't just go and add your own files there, as far as I'm aware. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. I know that wasn't always the case, but I believe it is now on 10 and I think 7. Um... So, like, your chance of... Ha if you already have admin privs, this isn't really gaining you anything. The only place I could really maybe see this happening is, like, some sort of app inside of, like, the temporary app directory. And then being able to plant it a little bit higher there, where you can do that as the user. So, like, I can imagine a scenario. I don't find it super likely, but I still thought it was an interesting attack to at least call out here, you know, especially on... You know, I like calling out those things for, like, pen testing, where you, you do end up in some pretty random scenarios that you just might be able to cause this situation. But in general, like, it does feel like, you know, an average user probably isn't going to be too likely to get hit here. Yeah, I mainly just found it cool because it's it's one of those ninja-type scenarios where you wouldn't expect Git to behave like this. So it's one of those hidden behaviors that could be abused in a very specific situation. Um, not a super practical one, but, you know, it is there and it is, you know, kind of a weird behavior that it's it's good to document. Yeah, I mean, I don't really fault Git because this .git directory is usually at the top of every repository. Again, it doesn't add that into every folder. 
So, like, you're left in a scenario, it needs to go find it, and if you're not really thinking about the code, or if you're not really thinking about the permissions in the code, you know, you don't think about crossing that privilege boundary, you're just saying you're finding the Git repository, and I don't know, I could completely understand somebody not really thinking about, you know, what if we look for this, and, like, it's a maliciously planted one, like, I don't know, that's not a thought that's really crossed my mind. Yeah, same here. So, yeah, it was kind of kind of cool to, to read that attack. Yeah, definitely um, a lot easier than the last Git one we covered, which was that weird race condition on exporting uh, with the sim links. Yeah. The, uh, the second bug was with the uh, Git uninstaller for Windows. Uh, basically, there it would use the default Windows temp directory and uh, the system user for uninstalling, um, and they would load DLLs from the temp directory. Problem is, the Windows temp directory is world writable, um, so you you just have your classic DLL hijack attack going on there. Uh, user could write a malicious DLL in there, get it loaded, and execute in the system. Pretty straightforward, but uh, a lot more impactful of an attack than the first one because this one is a lot more practical to to pull off. So, um, yeah, not super complex vulnerabilities coming out here and like i said they don't affect github or, or gitlab or anything um they're you know specific to the git local local binary but and it's it seems to mostly just affect windows but still i mean good to be aware of them yeah there's still interesting things like in general you can find these sorts of issues in other applications too like they are things you can look for um you know using the world writable locations for deals or even the Reversing up for a configuration directory isn't all that unheard of. I mean, uh, just thinking about it now, I'd wonder if you could have a similar attack going against, um, like, the IntelliJ products. Or JetBrain products, sorry. Uh, where it's looking for the idea folder. I don't know, since like, you load it, you give it the direct folder to load, I feel like it wouldn't traverse up, but... You know, a lot of applications do create that sort of folder and then might need to look for it. So there are other places you could probably find a similar sort of issue. Yeah, true. All right, so uh, with that said, we'll get into our second topic here, which I'll let Z get into. Yeah, and this one is, um, well, as the title says, got AWS Relational Database Service, and they have a vulnerability that leaks the uh, credentials for an internal service. They don't go into the details about what the internal service does. They just happen to be able to read uh, uh, credential files. Um, and they load in, see that's like some internal AWS service. Not sure where they'd go from there, but that in itself is a bit of a uh, claim. So if you're not familiar with RDS or Relational Database Service, I mean, this is effectively just a managed database service. Um and spin it up with whatever supported database, relational database engine you want. So think like MySQL, SQL Server. Uh, they have their own forks like PG or Postgre, Postgres SQL. I don't know how to say that one. PG SQL. And uh, uh, MySQL, so they have a fork of that, Aurora. Um, you can basically run it with whatever. And you get access to the database. You don't get access to the underlying, like, uh, EC2 instance or whatever it's actually running on. You just get the database. They manage the rest. They'll scale it and everything for you. So fairly locked down, or at least in theory, should be locked down. And what the uh, Lightsman team here found, I thought was just a cool little oversight. 
is really kind of shows how with security, like as an attacker, you need to get lucky once, but the defenders need to, you know, find absolutely everything or you'll find your way in. In this case, kind of comes down, they're trying to limit access to the host file system. So, of course, um, it, they do all of their testing here with a PG SQL setup. And there's usually like some ways to load in host data through that. You're restricted from accessing those. You don't have super user access. So they don't like you just call out and just read whatever files you want using the normal uh, PG SQL. Uh, what they do provide, though, are some extensions. And what they found was uh, obviously the untrusted extensions that would give you back access to do whatever were not trusted. You weren't allowed to load them. Uh, so that include things like um, uh, what is like PL, yeah, PL Python, PL, like whatever procedural language you want to use. Adding that would give you back file system access. So you're not allowed to do that. But they did find one of these extensions that was allowed was the uh, log FDW, I believe. Yeah, it was the log FDW uh, foreign data wrapper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to control F, but I can't type today. Uh, but yeah, so they had the uh, log foreign data wrapper. And the idea of that is you can load your log files into PG SQL. Um, and it will expose it as a table, basically. So you can give it a little bit of information about the file. And it will load that file up and you can read the lines of the file. Um, and the data actually being split into columns. Add some nice stuff around that, but effectively you just have this foreign data being loaded in. Of course, no, uh, Amazon did have some security around that. You couldn't just load arbitrary files. But it was kind of a weak enforcement of that. Uh, the way these foreign data sources work is you basically end up defining your handler function and a validator function. Um, these are generally implemented in like a C library or something that gets low as part of the extension. Um, but you define these two functions, or just one, actually. You just need the handler function. Validator will, uh, when you give it a foreign data source, it'll basically validate the option. So just gives you a chance to run the validator. That's optional, and then the handler actually loads it. What that also means is you can go ahead and just disable the validation function, or the validation handler, and just say, nope, I don't want to run that. And then the handler just gets it. So in this case, even though Amazon did have some security there to prevent just loading arbitrary files, that was only enforced in this validator. So basically by running the alter foreign data wrapper log and just telling it like no validator, uh, they were able to bypass the checks that actually enforced or uh, prevented you from loading just arbitrary local files. Uh, by turning that off, the actual handler itself didn't do any of these checks. Therefore, they were able to load, like, Etsy password or anything like that. And so they end up diving through a few configuration files, ultimately leading them to um, this Grover volume configuration, which led them to the Grover credential JSON file, giving them the secret key act and, like, token for whatever this account is. They were able to load that up and, like, see that it was some sort of internal... Uh, AWS thing, not really a lot of information about going on from there, because obviously at that point, you know, you should be reporting, not keep compromising, which is what they did. And it was patched uh, 
pretty quickly. They had an initial patch up within like five days. Um, and then they also took the time to reach out to all of their clients and fix and helped all of them upgrade uh, for anybody that couldn't be automatically upgraded. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that you could just switch out the validator like that. Um, now, I'm not like I don't really use Postgres. I haven't really had a need for it. I haven't really done much database stuff in general in the last couple of years. But I just yeah, I thought that was a little interesting that you could just swap out the validator like that. Though, to be fair, that's probably just because the validator is expected. Like, it's not expected to validate against someone who already has, um, like, access to run queries, right? It's, it's to protect um, the front end that would be using them. So, kind of makes sense there, I guess, when you think about it. But, yeah, um, I, I kind of, that was something I learned when I read the blog post. Was that you yeah, just I, I was... the validator. I was a little bit surprised in the same way, like, that you could just disable it. Um, that's why I referenced at the start, it does feel like one of those things where it's really easy to overlook that fact, because it is a bit of an interesting use case, um, that you do have that level of access, but not also to the host system, which, at least when PG SQL is being developed, like, even these sorts of cloud deployments weren't the most common situation. Usually it would just be like, um... You know, maybe multi-users on the database system. Not so much this level of access. So could kind of have some historic reasons on that. Um, but as AWS, like they have to be aware of all of these little things that can still be configured. Yeah, um, it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts thing when it comes to the cloud. Because there's so many different entry points and vectors that can be abused. All right, so uh, continuing with AWS, we have a Pripesk in AWS VPN coming out of Rhino Security Labs, uh, which involves two vulnerabilities, an arbitrary file write as system and an info leak through UNC path. Um, the first bug is basically very similar to the bug we covered last week in Pretunnel VPN, um, just, like, just like Pretunnel with the AWS VPN, they wrap around OpenVPN, um, and they have this configuration file that gets passed to it, uh, which, you know, just like pre-tunnel, they validate the check for malicious directives, like, you know, the executable directives or the logging directives. Um, but there's a race condition where that file can be written to by anyone. So, you know, post-validation, but before it's actually used, you can just switch out the configuration, uh, put in some malicious directives and uh, and get some primitives that way. Um uh, just like with pre-tunnel as well, they do use the script security one flag, so it wasn't quick, immediate code execution with just using the executable-based directives, um, but they could use the same trick that we covered last week, which was using the log directive to get um, some attacker-controlled contents written to an arbitrary file as system, um, which I believe last week, uh, the way that they abused that was to write a local batch file, um, which they were able to get executed the system as well. Um, the info disclosure is also pretty straightforward. Um, this is actually in the validation of the config file itself. And the problem there is um, when it tries to check the file paths that are supplied to any directives that use it, um, they they try to do this like pre-check to see if the file even exists. Um, and to do that, they simply use a try catch and see if they can open the file, which you know makes sense. That's kind of a common way of doing it. But the problem is it's possible for an attacker to pass a UNC path in there, um, which UNC paths, it's actually been a while. We 
we used to cover issues regarding these quite a bit on the show, but we haven't in a long time. Um, but they're kind of like this weird thing with Windows where you can access networked resources. Um, it's kind of like a necessary evil, I guess, especially when you get to like enterprise setups. Um, but they're very powerful in, in this regard because when they're opened, um, Windows tries to do that networking and it'll pass the user's uh, net NTLM hash over. So by just passing a UNC path to like a malicious attacker server, they can extract a user's uh, NTLM hash. So yeah, kind of cool to see that come back into the show. Like I said, I, I don't even remember the last time we covered an issue that regarded UNC path, but um, would have been quite a while ago. Um, I mean, in a yeah. large part, it's also, it's not that interesting of a vulnerability. You give a UNC path on Windows, if you try and open it, it sends the hash. It does that. I mean, that's just not that interesting vulnerability. It is a test case to keep in mind, you know, looking on bounties or whatever. If it is like a Windows server, maybe keep that in mind. But, I don't know, this one... I don't know, in this, in this particular case, it feels like such an ask that you're going to be in the scenario where this really matters like that somebody's going to go and import a malicious vpn config like this i mean it, it's possible uh but then also um under the aws thing i don't know i mean it's worth calling out that it's there but it does feel like a a bit of an ask and i Kind of just want to call it that first one, the arbitrary file write, in part because we just covered it last week. Very similar issue. I mean, it's just, it's slightly easier here. Uh, but more is just like, you know, this seems to exist in a lot of cases with uh, um, OpenVPN in general. Anything that's kind of wrapping OpenVPN, which is quite a few services out there. Um, so the fact that we're covering this, you know, in back-to-back -back weeks is kind of saying, like, yeah, maybe maybe take a look at this if you're dealing with OpenVPN or anybody running OpenVPN as part of their service. Yeah, it seems to be one of those things that's, like, copy-pasted, kind of, where it's the setup is done basically the exact same way across all applications. Or, and I won't say all, a lot of applications that wrap around uh, OpenVPN. So, yeah, that's a good call out as well. All right, so uh, we'll get into our last topic here, which is uh, from GitHub Security Lab. A uh, bit of a quick one uh, that was a last-minute ad, so uh, I'll let Z get into this one real quick. Yeah, it's um, it, it's kind of a silly issue, but also just something I hadn't really considered much before. So the issue here is in this VD editor. Um, basically, seems to be like a rich text editor. Um. And what you're able to do is effectively, if you have a um, copy of, like in your clipboard, if you have a copy of some HTML, so not like the raw HTML itself, but trying to copy the actual elements and you have an editor that supports like pasting in images or something like that, that's sort of rich, rich feature support. Um, if you have that and you copy in HTML with like javascript in it or in this case they're using the image on load to get uh, cross-site scripting um pasting that into the editor then actually results in well xss on that application in terms of a practical attack like that's a huge ask for a user interaction you know they've got to copy something that's malicious and then paste it in somewhere in uh that's vulnerable 
really big ask, but I also thought it was a really interesting attack surface. And they call out this um uh this copy paste playground here. Um I guess I didn't copy it. Also can't seem to select it for some reason right now, but they call it this little playground that lets you put um basically your HTML, it'll convert it into your clipboard as the actual HTML elements. Uh which seems like it would be useful for testing for this sort of thing. Um and basically just makes it possible to play around with this a little bit. Um, so I, I did at least want to call out that location. But as an issue, like, yeah, this particular one feels like it's a huge ass to actually attack this. But I don't know. I've never really thought about these rich editors and the pacing functionality there of rich content as one of the uh, vulnerability areas. Or as, like, an area to look for. So... Uh, figured I'd at least give it a shout-out here, despite the impractical nature of this particular case. Yeah, same here. I, I hadn't really thought of that scenario either. Um, which makes me feel a little bit dumb, because, I mean, it totally makes sense that you would want to check this. But, uh, yeah, I guess it just haven't really seen this kind of functionality abused too much in like in the topics that we cover and, and the feeds that we look at. So I guess that's partially why, but yeah. Um, not, not, not too much there, really. It's not really a super complex attack, but it is kind of an interesting vector that's not really thought of. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's basically the only reason I want to call it out. I mean, I'll be honest, this week was a little bit slow when it comes to the topics. There weren't a lot of write-ups for us to cover this week. Uh, but at least a couple sort of interesting scenarios. Yeah. All right. So uh, like Z said, uh, we don't really have anything else that uh, to cover for this week. So that's where we'll wrap up the episode. I uh, thank you, everyone who tuned in. Bot will be up on YouTube and Spotify and other platforms tomorrow. Uh, remember to check out our Discord or follow us on Twitter. Links for those are on our site or in the chat. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow. That's in our binary episode at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And we'll see you then.